The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Well, good morning. If we haven't met before, I am Dave. I'm the high school pastor here and teach up here some as well. And uh, so it's really good to see you all this morning. Um, It looks like I should have let the creative team know that I have an allergy to hay. Um, But I was raised on a farm, so I should be okay this morning. So, um, but uh, it's really good to see you all this morning. We're continuing our Advent series. And I want to tell you a story about this man here. This is Joshua Bell. And he is a world-renowned violinist, and he began playing at the age of four. And he's, today he is one of the top names in classical music. And on a normal night, some of the wealthiest people may drop hundreds of dollars to hear him play alongside some of the greatest musicians in the world. But back in 2007, he and the Washington Post did a social experiment, and he took his 300-year-old Stradivarius violin worth several million dollars, and he went into a busy Washington, D.C. metro station, and it was during morning rush hour, and he placed the case on the floor in front of him, you know, like you do, and uh, he began just playing some music, and in the course of 43 minutes, he played six songs, and during that time, over a thousand people walked past him, and only 27 people gave money, totaling $52.17. And out of that number that passed by, only seven people stopped and listened to the music. One of the greatest musicians today, and almost no one recognized him. John chapter 1, verse 10 says, He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. So Jesus, the Son of God who created everything, he, he shows up in the flesh and almost no one recognizes him. He comes to the world that he made. And if you look back in the Genesis uh, creation story, we always imagine that, uh, at least in my elementary brain, I always imagined that God the Father was the one that just like spoke everything into existence while the Son and the Spirit just quietly sat on the sidelines. At least that's how I imagined it when I was young. But when, we look, when you open the scriptures, though, you see that's not the case. When we look at the Genesis story, we see that the Trinity, all of the Trinity is involved at creation. In Genesis 1, chapter, chapter 1, verse 26, it says, Let us, that's plural, make man in our image, in our likeness. And many believe this is the, the first reference to the Trinity in the scriptures. And there are other places in the Bible where there are references to the Son, Jesus, being directly involved in creation, not simply of, of just mankind, but, but all of creation. In Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 through 17, Paul writes, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. I love just the the progression that Paul shows us there of how there's there's nothing, when it comes to authorities and powers, that everything is under his sovereign rule and, and sovereign care. 
And he was involved at creation in every aspect of creation. And it says all things were created through him and for him. In the same way that art tells us something about the artist, so creation tell us, tells us something about the creator. If you love to go and look at art, you're going to see that with certain, there's a personality that comes out in what people create. And if you look at various artworks of the same person, you're going to see a common thread or a common theme. It's going to look similar because it's, it's coming out of just who they are. That's what we see in the, in the creation story is that God, the, the, the creator, there is a connection between what he makes and who he is. And what he makes says something about who he is. Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. When you look at the heavens, you just see just the glory of our creator and how it expresses something about who he is when we look at all of creation. So all of creation says something about the creator. You know, there are some religions or even cults that they, they believe that Jesus has some divine qualities, but they believe that he was a created being. Many of them will teach that. But the scriptures are clear that he was right there at creation, involved in every aspect of it. Or some even believe in an idea that the, the creator and the creation are somehow one or like fused together. That's called pantheism. And people might say that they believe in some supreme being out there or you might hear them say there's a creative or there's a supreme energy out there somewhere in the universe. And this is how many people might define who God is. You know, almost everyone believes in something or someone beyond what we can see, but they may not believe in a personal God who created everything and who expressed himself in that creation. And they certainly don't believe in a God that is so personal that he would show up in the flesh in real time and in a real place. You see, Christianity teaches that there is the creator and there's the creation. And they are separate and distinct. And so not only was Jesus the agent of creation, but it, was, it says it was all created for him. That means for, for his praise and his honor and his glory. And in verse 17, I've always loved this little phrase in verse 17 where it says, in him, all things hold together. So not only was he involved in creation, but he is actively and currently holding all things together. Now you might say, well, it doesn't seem like it with all the suffering that we see out there in the world. And I would say, yes, there, there is suffering. But have you ever thought about the fact that there isn't nearly the suffering there could be. You know, whenever something tragic or, or, or cataclysmic happens out there in the world or in nature, people often ask, well, you know, how can, how can God allow this? But the real question is, why isn't this happening everywhere all the time? Now, I know that sounds like super pessimistic. If you're a pessimist type, that might be how you think. You know, why isn't this happening um, everywhere all the time. But here's the reality. He's holding all things together. This is a picture of Mars, two pictures of Mars. 
Well, on the left is how Mars would normally look. Yeah, this is a picture taken in, in 2001. And then just a few months later, the whole planet is just engulfed in, in a massive global dust storm. And, you know, sometimes dust storms on Mars get so big that they are larger than a continent and they can last for, for weeks and some can cover the whole planet. So when things look bleak on Earth, we can say, it could be worse. <laughs> I mean, you think about the exact nature of God and how the planet next to us, closest to the sun, and then the one that's further from the sun next to us, just how uninhabitable those places are, and you realize that there is a God who is holding all things together. Because if this were to happen, if things, if things look like this on earth, temperatures well below zero, atmospheric pressure so low your blood will boil, Bl- the sun blotted out by dust, storm, by, by dust for, for months at a time, whirlwinds that go as high as Mount Everest. So why didn't this happen on earth? Well, he's holding all things together. This is true on a large scale, and it's also true on a small scale. I love reading and thinking about even like the smallest particles that we know about. When you think about the energy that's contained in the smallest particles, you know, we, of course, we know that nuclear weapons, they, they split an atom and, and huge destruction, like huge energy is released from that destruction or from that, from that, that splitting. You know, everyone's worried about, you know, certain countries launching one, but no one's, wor- no one's really worried about an atom exploding spontaneously, can you imagine if that happened? There's a massive explosion somewhere. You know, what country was it? No, no another, another faulty atom went awry. Like, we don't think about that. Because the reality is, he is holding all things together. So Jesus is intimately involved in creation, and he's still intimately involved in sustaining it. Look at John 1, 10 through 11, where it says he was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. So Jesus doesn't just simply create and then leave it alone in the way that a deist might think of, of God, but he, he shows up in creation. He takes on human flesh. Now, he didn't become any less God, but he, he adds humanity to his divinity. He, he puts on flesh. It's, he adds to his divinity by adding on humanity. And we know Jesus, Jesus comes as the light, but the world, of course, can't see who he is. Some have called verse 11, where it says, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Some have called that the saddest verse in the whole Bible. And it's true. He shows up in human flesh to the creation that he made and his own people did not receive him. Matt Carter writes this, Jesus made our eyes, yet we refuse to see his glory. Jesus made our ears, yet we refuse to listen to his words. He made our heads, but we refuse to bow before him. I just imagine Jesus, when he was here on earth in the flesh, him just looking at people with compassion to those who spoke harshly to him, thinking to himself, but, but I created that mouth. 
and to those that are trying to lay hands on him and kill him, but I created those hands. And to all those who rejected him, but, but I created you, I created all of you. So whenever we open up the Gospels and we read, we, of course, we see Jesus doing all these miracles. And it's amazing because the words in the Gospels say things like, you know, even the wind and the seas obey him. What do we see there? We see that nature was more obedient than the people he created. When he shows up in the flesh, he has the ability to command of nature what he wills. When you think of what a miracle, the definition of a miracle is that the nature itself is submitting in obedience to him. And that's more he got from, than he got from the people. Because we have, of course, our own wills. And we're bent on doing what we prefer to do instead of worshiping him. So the, the creation receives him, but many of the people reject him. And there are two kinds of rejection in verses 10 through 11. The first is on a large scale. And it talks about the world. And the world did not know him. Or another word for that is recognize. The world did not recognize him. Now this might be someone who you know, believes that Jesus was just a man, just a good teacher, maybe a prophet, but he's not God to be worshipped. You know, there is a world, there's a worldly rejection, but then verse 11 gets more specific. And, and we zoom into the nation of Israel, and John says, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. So God selects his, his covenant people, these Jewish people, not because they're elite or special, but so that, for several reasons, so that they could be a blessing and a witness to the world. He sets up this covenant with them, this relationship based on a promise. He sends them prophets. He reveals his word through them, and he finally sends the Messiah to them. This is what it means that they're the chosen people. It doesn't mean that because of who they are, that every person is individually saved. He chose to reveal himself through these people so they can be a blessing and play a priestly role to the rest of the world. And they were to live out that special status with God so that other people and nations could see who this God is and worship him. But when Jesus comes, many people, of course, reject him. Now, they're looking for a Messiah, but they just had one with misplaced expectations. You know, one of the big questions that people think about or ask today is, what about those who never hear? What about those who never hear about Jesus or never hear about the gospel? What happens to those people? And that's a fair question. But behind that question is this idea. If we just had the right information, then we'd respond in the right way. It assumes that we only have an information problem. But we see time and time again, the Israelites had direct revelation from God, but they still rejected him. I think of the words in Isaiah chapter 65 where it says, I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices, a people who provoke me to my face continually. I'm not seeing a lot of debate about God's existence there. I'm, they, they know who he is. They know he exists, but they're choosing to rebel against him. Then Jeremiah 7, it says, 
from the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt to this day, I have persistently sent all my servants, the prophets, to them day after day, yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear, but they stiffened their neck, and they did worse than their fathers. We don't have an information problem. We have a heart problem. And there are many ways that people reject him, but there is, there is a way for us to receive him. So one of the saddest verses in the Bible, verse 11, is followed by one of the most joyful. Look at verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Some have said that the words, his own did not receive him, could be a mantle placed above all of chapters 1 through 12. But the rest of the book, we could hold up this banner that says, but to all who did receive him in the book of John. So what does it mean to receive him? Well, to receive him is, is more than just intellectual agreement with some facts about Jesus, but it is to submit to him in personal relationship. So to believe in is like this, this personal trust, this personal relationship idea is being put across. So what does it mean to believe in his name? Well, in the ancient world, names were a big deal, and they were significant. So to believe in his name means to place trust in, in all of who he is and all of what he did. So the question for us is, are you someone who's received him in this way? Have you believed in his name in this way? You know, we see in this, in these couple of verses, especially in verse 13, we see some wrong ways that we attempt to be saved. And we see here in, in the words of John, he refers to this idea of blood. I think we can link that to someone placing their faith and trust in their family background to be saved. Now, this idea pervaded Judaism back then, at the time of Christ, because many thought they could be saved because they had Jewish blood just flowing through their veins. You know, we're, we're the covenant people of God. We're special. We're elite. And so placing their faith and trust in this idea, their family background, and and their blood. And I think we struggle with this as well, I think, in our culture today, because some people think, of course, that they're saved because their family identifies as Christian. And we just think, yeah, I'm, I'm a Christian because that's how I've been raised. You know, one of the statements that I really struggle with is when someone says, I've just, I've just always been a Christian. And I understand to a certain extent, maybe you've always understood and had certain knowledge but when did it become personal? When did you begin to own your faith? When was it your faith and not the faith of your parents or your grandparents? So we cannot put our trust and faith in our family background because here's the reality. We are saved by blood, just not ours. It's his blood that saves us. And then the second way I think that, that John addresses wrong ways we attempt to be saved is our sincerity. The statement here is will of the flesh. And this will sound a little bit crass, but the phrase will of the flesh indicates sexual desire between husband and wife. And so a couple might 
make a sincere decision to try to have a baby, but ultimately, God is the one who brings it about. Ultimately, it's a miracle from God. God's the one that grants that life. But there are times where we think that it's the sincerity of our decision that brings about salvation. If you grew up in a church tradition where maybe you decided to follow Jesus like 10, 15 times in your youth, you can relate to this. And you, and you think to yourself, well, it's, was I sincere last time? I don't really know. Let's do it again. And let's do it again. But here's the reality. It's not based on the sincerity of your decision. It's based on God. God is the one who grants physical life, but also spiritual life. And so we can't put our faith in the will of our own flesh. And then the third phrase he uses is the will of man. This could be summed up as our own effort. Many of us really struggle with this. We, we believe that, we might believe that being a Christian, you know, means to just, you know, follow his teaching in some way and, and, and do what he, you know, commands us to do. And that's important for us to do that, of course. But if you're only approaching the Christian life as I'm going to do my best to live up to his standard, and that's how you see the Christian faith, well, that makes salvation about human effort and about works, and it's another way for us to miss and reject Jesus. So what happens for those who believe in his name? Well, it says he gives us the right to become his children. We've heard about this recently in, in previous uh, messages and, and passages. The idea that we get to be adopted by him. And that right is granted to us as a gift from God. You, no one can say, I've given myself the right or I've earned the right to be called a child of God. That, that comes only from him. You know, whenever we talk about this idea of spiritual rebirth or being born again, it can at times begin just to sound theoretical and just abstract. Maybe you're not yet a Christian. Maybe you're a new Christian, and you've heard that phrase used. You've heard the phrase born again or spiritual rebirth. And I'm, for you, it might sound like, that sounds like a good idea. What does that really mean exactly? So I want to have us look at what it means in the story of a man over in John chapter 3. We see a story of a man named Nicodemus. He's a Pharisee, and he has some questions for Jesus. Look at John chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. It says, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So this man has been observing Jesus, maybe from a distance. He's a Pharisee, which is, he's also part of the Sanhedrin, which is the, the, the Jewish religious court. And tradition says he's in the top three of Israel's wealthiest. So he's in that Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk category back in that culture. And even his name is, is just very interesting because his name comes from the Greek word Nike, meaning victory. We get the word Nike, you know, the shoes, the clothing from that. That's the Greek goddess of victory. And the second part of his, of his name, demos, means people. So his name literally means victory of the people. So the Jews live under 
Roman oppression, Roman rule. And they're expecting this Messiah to show up and to set them free from Rome. I can imagine his parents telling him things like, you know, Nicodemus, even your name means victory to the people. And one day, there's going to be a Messiah who shows up and gives that to us. And he's going to set us free from this Roman oppression, this Roman rule. And there are many people in his position that rejected Jesus. And we we usually associate the Pharisees, of course, with negative, right? But Nicodemus is this just powerful example and a positive example of someone who's in the early stages of his faith. And so one night he goes to Jesus, and he goes at night because he's, he's fearful of what may happen to him if others find out he's meeting with Jesus. And so based on what he had seen and observed, he concluded that Jesus is in fact from God. Look at verse 3. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Now, of course, this is a famous interaction in the scriptures. And, you know, we can't really hear tone when you read text like this, like when someone gives you a text message, you always can't read their tone into what they're writing. I think we're, we're probably missing some sarcasm here as he makes this statement. I don't think he really thinks he needs to go find uh, the womb to climb back into. But his response, if you look at the statement that Jesus says in response to Nicodemus' first statement, Jesus' response doesn't seem to fit Nicodemus' his initial statement. Because Nicodemus says, I can tell that you are from God, and then Jesus responds with this idea that needs to be reborn. He seems to answer a question that Nicodemus isn't asking. So why does he do this? Well, to the Jews, the kingdom, of course, was political, and a Messiah was, was going to free them from Rome, they thought. And the Jews believe if they, if they keep the law, they live morally, then they're going to have a chance to enter into that kingdom. So Nicodemus is coming to Jesus that night to discuss that kingdom with him. But I think what happens here is that Jesus peers right into his heart and he sees right through him. And he sees his real need, that he needs to be reborn. And he says, you need to be, you need to be reborn again, born again. And now Nicodemus is confused. And again, I think there's some sarcasm going on in, here, in his response here. And I know if you're not yet a Christ follower, you might hear the phrase born again, and you might think that being a Christian simply means going from being a bad person to being a good person. I know we struggle with that. We think that we started attending church, we started hearing about Jesus and his grace and mercy to us, offered to us in the cross and his resurrection, and we start to think that that's that's all well and good, and maybe you had an encounter with Jesus in some way, And then you start to think, well, yeah, being a Christian, being reborn just means that I go from being a bad person to being a good person. So all the stuff that I used to do, I'm just going to stop doing that and start doing the stuff that the church people tell me I'm supposed to start doing. And we start to see, you might think of being reborn as simply just going from being a bad person to being a good person. But here's the problem with that. In this story... 
Nicodemus is already good, at least in the eyes of man. He's a moral man. He's an accomplished man. But Jesus says, you need rebirth. You've got to go back to ground zero. You've got to start over, Nicodemus. And notice the link that Jesus makes with being born again. He's, he, he links it to seeing the kingdom of God. And it shouldn't surprise us that Jesus is linking being born again with, with seeing because he, he came and he, heal, he healed blind people. And he talked about being healed of spiritual blindness. So it shouldn't surprise us that being born again is, is linked to being able to see and being able to see the kingdom, the kingdom of God. And I know that many of you can affirm this because when you were born again, you came to know Jesus, you began seeing with different eyes. You began to see yourself in a whole new light. You began to see God in a whole new way. You began seeing his word in a whole different way. You began seeing other people with fresh eyes and fresh vision. You no longer saw God as just some rule monger, but you began seeing him as a loving father. You no longer saw sin as freedom, but you began seeing it for what it is, and that it's slavery. You no longer obeyed God out of obligation, but you began obeying him out of a relationship of love. So Nicodemus is, he's reborn, and it's a miracle of God. And he was transformed in such a way that if you trace his story in the background of the Gospel of John, in John chapter 7, Nicodemus, in this one instance, he stands up and he defends Jesus in front of other Pharisees. And as he grows in boldness, by the end of the Gospel, he's directly involved in the burial of Jesus. He's the one that that pays with his own money 75 pounds of the spices that were used in the burial of Jesus. He's no longer hiding in the darkness of night because he saw his need for spiritual rebirth and he knew that that was his gateway to true joy. So that's how the story of Nicodemus ended, but I want us to see how it began. This is a scene from The Chosen, and this is the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. We'll watch, then worship. Do you remember when the children of Israel complained against God and against Moses in the wilderness of Paran? Yes. They wanted to return to Egypt, and they cursed the manna that God sent them. And then? They were bitten by serpents, and they were dying. But? But God made a way for them to be healed. Moses lifted the bronze serpent in the desert, and people only needed to look at it. So will the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Our people are not dying from snake bites. They're dying from taxation and oppression. I'm sorry to disappoint you, but I did not come to deliver the people from Rome. Then from what? From sin. From spiritual death. God loves the world in this way. That he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him shall not perish. But have eternal life. 
so this has nothing to do with Rome. It's all about sin. God did not send his son into the world to condemn it, Nicodemus. He sent him to save it through him. It's as simple as Moses' serpent on the pole. Whoever believes in him will not be condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already. Have you ever heard anything like this before? Shh. When I met Lilith, Mary, that day, I told my wife and my students I said she was beyond human aid. Only God could have healed her. And then I saw her healed. the sun, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. 